0: Low morale among the Royal Marines, why some commandos want to leave, why we fight, what is the psychology of war, why Swedish people have been told to prepare for disaster, terrorism and even a military attack, and MI6 puts its recruitment campaign on television. MI6, secretly, we're just like you. Hello, this is James Hurst in for Kate Gibeault. The latest internal survey from the Ministry of Defence suggests many Royal Marines are unhappy in their jobs. The latest survey of attitudes in the armed forces suggests there has been a significant fall in morale across all the services, but the slide is particularly acute in the Royal Marines. Two years ago, 62% of Royal Marines officers rated morale in the services high. Now it's just 23%. Among other ranks, the figure is just 9%. So what is going on? Well, let's talk to a former Royal Marine. Emil Geeson. served from 2000 till 2012, taking in including other places, Afghanistan and Iraq. He's currently working with the Forces Media Academy. Uh, you are obviously still in contact with many of your friends who are serving. What's
1: your impression from them about how morale is? Morale's low amongst Marines at the moment due to the fact nothing's going on. The campaigns in Afghanistan and Iraq are now over. And the Defence Review, with the potential cut to a thousand Marines, is men at the moment are trying to think, why am I here? What are we doing? I mean, you talk about morale being
0: low or high. That's quite a binary. Is it a general
1: dissatisfaction or are people seriously had enough? Well, if people have had enough, they'll leave, and they always have left over the years. But I think as a collective unit, morale is low, with the selling off bases, the movement of Marines around the country. And the fact is, the, the budget isn't there anymore, and Marines just feel as though, why have I gone through all this training to become a Royal Marine Commando, and now I'm sat on barracks, or we're going on Dartmoor to do exercises, or Senny Bridge, where are the good tours? And knowing that, they live in the era, post-era of iraq and afghanistan the war stories and the operations that we've done and we've done well in these theaters of conflict so the new generation are thinking when am i actually going to be able to test myself i've gone through commander training when can i do this and the guys who have served before generally caught in a pension trap are going things are very different now i mean in short in any other job it'd be saying a lack of job satisfaction at the totally moment. yeah and um Because my work now, I go around filming in the war zones and a lot of guys are going to be, oh, I'd love to come out with you because you're seeing more action than what we are currently at the moment. Because the sense that Brotherhood within the Marines earning you green berries is a big deal and guys want to go prove themselves, They want to go on operations. Uh, How much do you think newspaper reports
0: speculation about significant cuts to the Royal Marines coming up? How much of an impact do you think they're having?
1: I think personally massive um, impact is having on people. People are thinking, well... We're supposed to be elite, the Royal Marines are supposed to be an elite force. Why do you want to cut our numbers? And I think governments are very short sighted in the sense that when they're trying to cut money, they look into it and go, where can we save money? And it looks like the Royal Marines are the ones who have been targeted. And so men feel victimised. Uh, our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, with us as always. Christopher, the, the forces,
0: the various forces have, have had periods of quote, inactivity and, and, and reduced morale before. How do they how do they get out of that?
2: Well, you don't get out of it. That's the whole point. I mean, when you're you, talking about the Royal Marines, you've be talking about something rather special. Um, something which has a, a, a de- defined aim, and that's it. When you get something which has been going on for the past 12 months, uh, you've got people who are reading newspapers because the guys up top serving guys up top are leaking to those newspapers, especially two in particular, and saying the government is threatening to get rid of a thousand marines and to get rid of their ships, for example. Nobody says, are they? Because what they're doing, these guys up top, are, are trying to get public opinion so it doesn't happen. Now, you're serving, you read the newspapers, and what do you get from the newspapers? You're being told that thousands of the guys are going to be told to go that you're losing the ships and i think it's, it's got a counterbalance and that's one of the greatest uh, greatest difficulties
0: uh, final thought from you emil uh, what do you think serving m- marines your friends who are still in the service w- would like
1: to see as a an immediate assistance to keep their morale up well it's hard to say be careful what you wish for i would say um I don't personally want any more future conflicts, um, unnecessary wars. Um, however, there needs to be a bigger budget to allow men to go off and do more Gucci things, as they would call it. OK. Emil Gieson, thank you
0: very much. Uh, Christopher Lee will stay with us. Next, a groundbreaking new missile system for the Royal Navy, which has officially entered service. The announcement has come from the Defence Secretary at the Royal United Services Institute Sea Power Conference where some of the biggest brains in sea power and defence have been meeting to discuss Britain's future on the seas. There for us, Laura Macon-Isherwood. Laura, this is a big milestone for the Royal Navy, isn't it?
3: Well, it is, yeah. At a time when the Ministry of Defence is having to come to terms with changing threats in all sectors and Russia appears to be becoming increasingly aggressive, the fact that this long-awaited missile system is now in service is going to send out a strong message to Britain's adversaries. And as you said, the Defence Secretary made this announcement in central London at the Royal United Services Institute. He'd been invited there to make the keynote speech at that conference discussing the future of British sea power and that he did it was a half an hour long prepared speech and the announcement was buried within it
2: we've now spent a billion pounds with our suppliers to speed up those next generation ships into service as well as our type 23 frigates armed with state-of-the-art precision guided supersonic sea scepter missiles which i can announce have successfully completed their trials
3: I don't know about you, but I'd expected a little more fanfare from the uh, Defence Secretary on this. The Sea Scepter missile system is an £850 million system that's going to be used to protect the new Elizabeth-class aircraft carriers, HMS Queen Elizabeth and HMS Prince of Wales, from hostile jets or missiles. But that announcement was very measured, very to the point. Mr Williamson spoke about the trials that had taken place. Tests were carried out last year on HMS Montrose and HMS Argyle, and they were said to be successful, and those successes have led to this development today but this is as we said a very significant milestone for the royal navy technology on these ships will be state of the art that well-known phrase that we always use and it's vital if britain wants to maintain its premier maritime position
0: well we've heard there from the senior politician has anybody in uniform had anything to say about this
3: Yes, this morning First Sea Lord Admiral Philip Jones spoke to the Today programme on Radio 4. He seemed very pleased with this announcement too. He said he sees it as another step forward for the Royal Navy in terms of capability.
1: We're going through a significant piece of modernisation in the Navy at the moment. Uh, New capabilities, new systems on, above and under the water, of which the Sea Scepter missile system is a vital part. And, And I think this is an essential way of enabling the Navy to fulfil the tasks we need to fulfil
3: and those tasks are ever-increasing, as we've said. And he was talking about the investment there, and it's investment in those Elizabeth-class aircraft carriers. In Dreadnought, there was the announcement last week that the second phase of that will go ahead, as will the building of the 7th Astute-class Hunter Killer submarine, which is set to be named HMS Agincourt. But it wasn't those vessels, those new vessels, that were front and centre today. It was actually the Type 23 frigates. They're the ships that are going to host the Sea Scepter missile systems. HMS Argyle is set to be the first to be deployed with one installed to the H- Pacific region, and there was another development for those Type 23 frigates that was announced today as well.
2: We're investing heavily in the Middle East at a time of unprecedented uncertainty, and I can today announce that we will be extending that commitment by sending Type 23s to the Gulf from 2019 as an enduring presence.
3: So Type 23s are also going to be heading to the Gulf next year But there's no details yet on the number that are going to be deployed Exactly what they'll be doing yet It seems at the moment it's part of Gavin Williamson's plan To have a presence, he says, around the globe
0: But of course, uh, Mr Williamson, every time he says something uh, Gets faced with a question about the modernising defence programme That's being worked on What, What will that mean for what you're saying? Did he address any of that today?
3: He didn't. And that's the question a lot of people are asking. He didn't take any questions from anyone today. That's a bit of a change of form from him because the last few appearances we've seen him, at least journalists have been out, allowed to put questions to him. Uh, he did sp- stop to speak to some of the Royal Navy personnel that had attended the conference and he spoke about needing their help in the future to make sure that politicians make the right choices. Of course, the choices that he has to make, we think, will depend on the funds that are available to the Ministry of Defence. Of course, the MOD has a gaping hole in its budget at the moment. And while c Sceptre is good to go right now, we still don't know for certain how much of the future equipment plan is going to be fulfilled. So we have to wait for that modernising defence programme, the results of that to come through, and then wait for the choices and decisions that Gavin Williamson is going to have to make.
0: Laura Macon isherwood from Westminster. Thank you very much indeed. Christopher Lee, uh, A, a, an important announcement, isn't it, the, 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 this missile system?
2: I tell you what, James, what it does, isn't it? This is yet another badge to put up for the Royal Navy. The Royal Navy has come from almost thinking it was going to sink to being quite a big investor's portfolio in new hardware or modified hardware. Now, if you... Th- talk about the uh, the Type 23 and say, right, we're going to put um, one of these missile systems in the Type 23 and how many Type 23s? It's only a couple of years ago when you're saying, oh, well, you know, the Type 23s will all be going off to, to make razor blades very shortly. Um, so they won't be around. But then you've got things like the Type 45s not working as it's best to work, so you keep them in... The- With
0: all this speculation about savings still needing to be made, has the Royal Navy... Been manoeuvred or manoeuvred itself into a position where actually it's so far down the line with these big expensive equipment programmes, it just doesn't make sense to to cut now.
2: Well, you could actually get to a point where you say that the you, you look at you look at the army which has been restructured un, un, under the uh, well uh, uh Nick Carter who was just just gone as uh, chief of the general staff. That restructuring is a complicated business because it's such a big organisation. What has happened with the, uh, the uh, Air Force, the Air Force is moving up towards, does it only get half its F-35s so that it was imagining it was going to get, and that's looking more and more likely. But the big thing is, the Navy put up two big projects, and on one afternoon, somebody said yes, and when you've got an aircraft carrier that big, and one, the other one in refit, what they didn't really understand, or the politicians didn't understand when they committed the money to it. When you put an aircraft carrier like that to sea, you've got to put six surface ships around it, you've got to have another six ready to go round and trickle into it, you've got to have five subsurface vessels, and you've got to have aircraft to go with it, and maintenance, and more RFAs, etc. You have sent off a battle formation to join in with other NATO... Uh, alliances with the Americans etc. What you've done actually, you have—you might just have got in ahead of the first secretary to the Treasury, i.e. the man that carries the money
0: Still to come, why we fight. A former soldier turned academic talks about the psychology of war and doomsday preppers, why the population of Sweden's been told to prepare for war But next, a new advert hits TV screens in the UK tonight, in a first for the secret intelligence service. MI6 has bought airtime on 10 TV channels for a new recruitment campaign. Filmed at an aquarium, it opens with sharks swimming in a tank. All very James Bond, especially when you hear the music. We are intelligence officers. But we don't do what you think. Actually, this ad is trying to dispel James Bond clichés and myths. The The camera turns to show a young black boy startled by the sharks, comforted by his mother.
4: It's exploring the world beyond your own.
0: And if that sounds familiar, it's because you do it every day. MI6. Secretly, we're just like you. Its message, you might not think so, but you could have the skills we need, and its clear target is women and people from ethnic minorities. It's quite a turnaround for an organisation that, not that long ago, would only recruit its selected targets with a tap on the shoulder. An organisation so secretive that one author wrote, even revealing the colour of the carpet at MI6 headquarters would breach the Official Secrets Act. Now it is more worried about improving its diversity of thought to help avoid groupthink. So, is MI6 abandoning its traditional recruiting pools, which include the forces? Yesterday, I put that question to the head of recruitment for MI6, and they told me they are still keen to take on anyone with the right skills. Major General Chip Chapman, former head of counter-terrorism at the Ministry of
1: Defence, says that means the forces remain appealing the team and tasks come before the individual, both in the SIS and the military. So from a core values perspective, that is a good fit. It's also the case that we bring leadership and decision making along with the way that we do our own at- analytics in terms of the estimate process. And most of the intelligence which is gathered, of course, is, comes from looking at various data sets. So that's looking at fragmentary pieces of information, Putting them together to try and get a pattern—that's something that people in the military are also good at. That's what we do in a, in a war-fighting environment, as well as counterinsurgency and other times when we're deployed.
0: It, it is interesting. Yeah, you know, they've gone from only choosing people to try themselves to recruit to, to to the widest possible advertising, right into people's living rooms. Does that suggest that actually they'd rather have the kind of people you wouldn't expect to apply?
1: Well, of course, you need a diverse and inclusive. Uh, workforce in the SIS and MI5 as well as you do in the army, so they need a broad church to be able to look at the threats because of course the threats are broad in the UK today, both at home and away. Christopher, it is only back in 1994
0: that the government first formally acknowledged that MI6 existed, even though it has done for now over a 100 years. Is this a significant departure, do you think, for them to advertise on television for the kind of people... Well, it's going can... to
2: social media, isn't it? I mean, it's is, is as simple and as that. social media will be part of this campaign. Yeah, that, that's as simple as that. Listen, um, last weekend I was talking to a girl of... Uh, she's 30. She has been in the past... Well, she's since leaving Cambridge. She has done media studies, et cetera, and then into the media... She's just going through her phase of selection into, um, in not into MI6 but into the security service, MI5, and that's her her attitude was, I'll tell them what I can do. And they said, well, we want to know more about what you do because you're exactly the sort of person we need. We don't want somebody who is a sort of, you know, would-be sleuth or, or whatever.
0: But she is a Cambridge graduate and that fits the, the typical profile, doesn't it? Uh,
2: I think it does. Or um, well, the
0: stereotypical profile, I should well, say. Well, at
2: one time, and also it had to be classics. Um, but no, I mean, she was a complete failure. She wrote Geography, I mean, as far as she was concerned. And, but that's it. i tell you what's happening, though, which is far more, uh, to my mind, more interesting. I mean, the, the uh, MI6 is just sort of catching up. And it's got a lot to do, um, and we understand that. The CIA. Got something yes, they're it.
0: doing something very similar.
2: And uh, I gather I uh, they wrote you an email. Well, yeah, yeah. And that shows how weak it is. Um, but no, what they're doing, we've got a new director. And they're laying out a whole new uh, uh, sort of way of working at the moment. Uh, And they're looking for people who have been, for example, estate agents, uh, who've been car salesmen, who've been project engineers, because they are thinking now we've got to get far more of our people out, out of the United States of America. So the guy that's working as an estate agent in, I don't know, Waikika or something like that, is in fact not simply an officer, uh, and in the CIA, have this thing, if you're an officer, you're a full-time member of the CIA. If you're an agent, it means that you're a part-time member of feeding into a full-time member. And then casuals as well, uh, information grinders, as they call them. And that is happening because America is actually saying, under its new director, who was running the waterboarding in Thailand, actually, in her previous job, what they're actually saying is that we've got to get out where it is And we've never done that before. Now, the SIS has always got out where it is. And that's one of the reasons they've been so successful. But it's the Americans are actually saying that we we mustn't get stuck in America. And that's at a time when the president is saying we've got to sort of stay in America. We we, we mustn't get out into the world and believe that the world uh, can rely on us to run it. Well, my last thoughts and one last item from the briefing yesterday... It's blue,
0: at least the small piece of carpet that invited journalists got to see yesterday at mi6 headquarters is blue. Now, why do we go to war? One former British Army officer thinks he has the answer, and it is not necessarily what you think. Dr. Mike Martin has been studying the evolutionary psychology of warfare, and it is the topic of his latest book,
5: "Why We Fight." He thinks the answer lies in evolution. When you look at it, there's only two reasons that are worth fighting for that offset the risk of death in combat or in terrorism. And those things are increased social status and belonging to a cohesive social group. Dr Martin has drawn on his
0: studies as a biologist and says leaders with more testosterone seek to dominate other leaders to increase their status.
5: If ever there was an example of somebody who seeks status and is likely to cause a war, it's President Trump. But we also have two other examples as well. Uh, President Putin, and uh, President Kim in North Korea. All three of those uh, presidents are are really obvious examples of people who seek status uh, for whatever reason to an extreme extent, and as a result, um, come perilously close to war fighting. So, does this mean
0: women could have more of a role in preventing war?
5: The presence of women in armed groups, or as politicians, or in peace negotiations, does mean less violence and so when people are trying to ameliorate conflicts that's why they um, make specific provision to include women in peace negotiations as well as to uh, include their concerns and to include them in political decision making because it does drive down levels of violence
0: well dr martin's experience includes serving in afghanistan and he says he's realized a lot of writing about the conflict simply didn't reflect the reality
5: those experiences didn't match how people spoke about war, how people wrote about war. There's a kind of taboo in UK society which is that conflict can be quite fun, it's really engaging and and people are motivated to go and do it and if you have these positive emotions towards it, and that's not to say that there's not terror at times involved or, or crushing sadness, but. There are a lot of positive emotions involved, and so that means we must have evolved to fight wars for a reason.
0: Dr Mike Martin on the psychology of war. Of course, psychology often plays a part in war and leading up to it and preventing it. If you're a resident of Sweden, this week you will have perhaps received such a psychological nudge, a leaflet through your letterbox about how to prepare for war. Salmon balls, tea lights and wet wipes. Just some of the things that households have been advised to stock up on in case of major crises. Those crises could include terror and cyber attacks, natural disasters as well as military conflict. Well earlier I spoke to Elizabeth Braw who is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and I asked her why Sweden has done this
4: well as you know there have been a number of instances of of russian aggression in recent years and sweden is quite familiar with russian aggression not in in terms of invasions but just in terms of of provocation so there have been uh, over the years uh, repeated uh, submarine incursions Uh, There have also been in more recent years uh, in in addition to suspected submarine incursions there have been more or less veiled threats from Russian representatives about what would happen if Sweden joined NATO. And and, uh, as you know, Russia is quite active uh, in in other parts of of the Baltic Sea region as well in in trying to intimidate uh, other countries. So there is a growing um, concern that uh, Sweden is just not, among uh, Swedish decision makers, that the country is just not Prepared for for any sort of hostile action. You
0: say provocations rather than actual aggressions. Is there a is there a sense from uh, Sweden that provocation could turn into real hard direct aggression?
4: I, there is no sense that that any military action is is imminent. But of course, as as you well know, the the nature of uh, defense is not to defend against imminent attacks uh, it's, it's to deter attacks so it's it's your best guarantee or your best insurance against uh, aggression so what i would uh, say with with this uh, what you might call total defense plan uh, preparing the population for for a, a range of different crises it means that should something happen be it uh, russian military aggression be it Mother Nature causing uh, devastation, or be it uh, terrorist attacks, the population is prepared, and that will significantly limit would significantly limit uh, the effects of an attack. Which also means that then it's it's not such a, an attractive thought anymore to try to come uh, to try to perpetrate an attack.
0: And Sweden's not the only country to have done something like this in the last couple of years, is it?
4: Well, it's certainly the pioneer. Uh, so. Uh, it's the first country to to uh, issue the the brochure that you just mentioned. Uh, Sweden, uh, Finland, uh, Denmark, and Norway have maintained a higher degree of of uh, uh, total defense since the end of the Cold War, while Sweden uh, really dismantled total defense altogether. But now it's coming back with. Uh, with, with great force, and right now it's a pioneer of, of uh, total defence. And by the way, that also includes a new government agency uh, that will um, have uh, the task of, of uh, keeping elections free uh, from uh, interference. Uh,
0: does it panic people? That, that's that's the danger of something like this, isn't it?
4: Yes, and that's a question I get all the time. Uh, but... I lived in San Francisco for five years, and as you know, San Francisco is an earthquake area, and the city runs constant public awareness campaigns about what to do in case of an earthquake, what what sort of food to store, what sort of supplies to store, Um, how how to, where to hide during an earthquake, how to reach your your, uh, friends and and family after an earthquake and so forth. And so you might argue that that would uh, cause uh, panic among uh, local residents because you really don't want to think about where you would hide uh, in in case of an earthquake. But it has the opposite effect. It it, uh, makes you actually calmer because you know that actually I'm prepared for the worst. And, and if it happens, I know exactly what to do. And this is, I think, the case with, with other uh, crises as well, like the, the crises that, that the Swedish government mentions in, in this new bro- brochure. If the population is prepared, then there is not so much to worry about. And, and uh, the other um, the alternative is, of course, for the pe- population to be completely unprepared, in which case Every newspaper article mentioning Russian aggression or, or floods or or uh, hacks of the, of the power grid, for example, that will create panic.
0: How does it make you feel as a Swede, albeit a, a long-term expat?
4: Well, I, I must say I'm, I'm, I'm quite proud that, that Sweden has taken this step and, and shown that uh, defence is not just about the armed forces. It's a collective effort by uh, by. People in uniform and the rest of us, and that creates, I think, uh, resilience across society. And also, um, it's 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 a healthy balance between the armed forces and society, where uh, it's uh, it's not just a matter of. Uh, um, us uh, civilians sitting back in our chairs and saying, well, I pay my taxes and now the uniformed uh, men and women have to take care of it. No, we all have a role to play. And if we are more active, I think it also increases social cohesion, which is, I think, what will happen with with this brochure and, 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 the, and the other parts of, of the uh, plans to bring total defence back. And I think it's something that other countries can learn from.
0: Elizabeth Braw from the Atlantic Council. Now, finally this week a topic we have talked about many times on this programme. We will no doubt talk about many times more. There's always been this uncertainty about what will happen next between the US and North Korea. They were due to be having a summit. Today, we learn that Donald Trump has decided, at least for now, that summit will not be going ahead. He has written to the uh, Korean leader to say, It won't be appropriate to hold it at the moment. It was scheduled for 12th of June, but he's very much looking forward to meeting
2: someday. Why has Donald Trump done this? Standard stuff. Absolute standard stuff. Reagan did it with Gorbachev in 1986, for example. When a president goes to a summit meeting, he has to know what the result's going to be. He's got his press conference all fixed, he's got his statement all written before he goes, and he doesn't go to get into a row and to lose. And so all this happened at the moment. His, his people have sat around with him as Mr. President, we will not put this thing together. And so he's written to Chairman Kim Jong-un and he has said, listen, it's not going to work on in time for Singapore on the 12th, but I do look forward to seeing you. I'm sure we'll get there somehow, but he is putting the pressure on Kim Jong-un.
0: I mean, the, the, the cynic's point of view, briefly, would say... Donald Trump has um, pulled out of this before Kim Jong-un un pulls out on him.
2: No, if, if Kim Jong-un un- had pulled out on him, that would be brownie points for the president.
0: Really? Would he not look like he'd, he'd ruined no, no, a no, chance no, no, for... No, no, no. He'd,
2: he'd better say, look, this guy, we, were, we we got a date fixed up on the 12th of June and he's pulled out. It is very, very simple. Unless you're going to a, to a, a conference to get what you want, you don't go to the conference. We're going to watch this. And no doubt, there will be
0: more fallout, more diplomacy to come. But that is all the time, all we have time for this week. Do of course check out our video on the Forces News Facebook page. Send us your comments on any of the things we have discussed today. Maybe morale, and you can tweet us at the FBS sitrep. Don't forget, you can never miss an episode. Simply subscribe to this show as a podcast. Hopefully Kate Chabot will be well enough to be back in the seat next week and I will see you soon. Bye for now.
1: The best of British news. Sport and entertainment. For the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.